0: Welcome to the Arizona Wine Guru Podcast. A couple of housekeeping announcements to get started with today's episode. A lot of these episodes, I'm going into the field to interview these incredible wine specialists and these gurus of Arizona wine and the culture. Many of them winemakers, so we go right into their wineries. Some of them tasting rooms and people that are running those rooms or the families that are behind it. And so the... The audio is not going to be exactly precise like it would be in my studio, and that's okay. It's uh it's actually indicative of an Arizona wine culture. Something that I've noticed now after being involved in it for almost five years, and that is simply it's real. <laughs> the people are real, the knowledge is real, the wine is real good, and nobody's re- really pretentious about it. So just wanted to touch base on that. I do understand that. Some of the some of the interviews you'll hear background noise. You'll hear the the noise in the wine rooms. You'll hear the noise in the wineries, and uh, just understand that we're taking you literally live right into that environment. So that's what we're doing. Also, if you appreciate this podcast, please subscribe and uh, and comment and and give some reviews, and that helps us in the Apple listings and all the different analytics of where they put the podcasts out. Also, if you subscribe, you'll get notified when the new episodes come up. And we've got a bunch of great people on the docket for the next four episodes already. So I'm excited to share those with you. And today, one of those people is the fabulous Paula Woolsey. Paula is a professor at the wine program at the college here in Cottonwood. And I actually was mentored under her, took a couple of classes from her. Paula's just an incredible wealth of knowledge about Arizona wine, actually wine all over the world. But particularly Arizona wine, she was a fundamental figure in in early pioneering in the space. But not from a winemaker's perspective, so I think you'll find this very interesting. This episode is brought to you by the AZ Wine Crawler the new hop-on, hop-off shuttle service in the Verde Valley wine country. Different than a tour where you get to go to maybe three specific spots for your couple of hours or whatever time it is that you allot, or is allotted you, I should say. This is a program where the shuttle rolls through over 12 stops every hour to some of the most fabulous wineries and tasting rooms in the whole Verde Valley. And it allows you to stop, hop on, hop off at your own pace, at your own time. Explore the Verde your way. The AZ Wine Crawler. Check it out. It's a great solution if you're going to come up here and enjoy Arizona wine. Very economical, far less than what you'd pay on some of those other options. And it's, a, it's, it's just a real practical Way to go, because you get to do it on your own time, you get to schedule your own day. You're not locked in with a bunch of other people that you might not know, and then you're stuck there until it's time to go to the next place. azwinecrawler.com. Go there, reserve your days when you're going to be up in the Verde Valley, and just get your daily pass pre-purchased, ready to go. The shuttle comes through your location, you hop on, and off you go for fun azwinecrawler.com. Get a daily pass and spend the whole day exploring the Verde Valley wine country your way. Welcome to the AZ Wine Guru podcast, of which I am not, but we are going to introduce you to one today. Somebody who I so deeply respect in the wine world. Somebody who I was fortunate to personally mentor under as well. And who, just really, in my opinion, if you have any ideas about wanting to get into the wine world, the multiple aspects of what it entails, anything to do with it other than make it, this, this woman is the one you want to talk to. Uh, I bring you Miss Paula Wolseley. Hi, Paula.
1: Hi, Jay. Thank you for having me. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Thank you for being with me today. We're doing this podcast, gang, from the Carlson Creek Wine Tasting Room on Old Town Cottonwood. We'll get into that a little bit. Paula's going to share with us some of her amazing skill on how to analyze a wine, so I'm going to get to taste some wine with her, too. Now, Paula, I, I know a little bit, not, enough to be dangerous in regards to some of even your background, but tell me about your, your wine lineage. It goes back multiple generations, no?
1: Well, yes, it does. My father was a wine importer. We lived in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area in a little town called Los Altos, And my grandfather, Sicilian grandfather, had to get out of Chicago every year. So he'd come live with us for four months of the year. And during that four months of the year, we had a vineyard in our backyard behind the garage. And he was there for long enough every year to make a barrel of Zinfandel. And some of my earliest childhood memories would be my father handing me an empty carafe and saying, you know, go out to the garage. And the garage was, like, scary. It was separate from the house and it was dark. (laughs) And I had to pour this fill this carafe of wine and there was no um there was no intimidation my family we drank wine from as kids uh, for dinner from my earliest memories and they watered it down when we were little little kids but as we got older my father was in the wine business it was his mission in life uh, when I was growing up 13 14 years old I'd rather be doing anything but hanging out with my parents and he wanted to explain the differences between a bordeaux and a burgundy and we did these amazing wine tastings cuz he was an importer he brought wines in from france and from spain to our little town of los altos he had he owned the pacific coast wine company oh, so Christ. he had partners that were <clears throat> like david bruce was one of his partners and one of my earliest memories with david bruce was seeing um, old green 7-Up bottles in the refrigerator with masking tape labels on it that said White's Infidel.
0: <laughs> and this
1: is like something they were trying out then. Paul Draper from The Ridge was one of his partners. And wow. they got into, you know, creating the business early days in the 70s and the 80s in the Bay Area. And my dad would be that kind of kingpin that would bring in all these wines and build wine cellars for... You know, David Packard and rich lo- local early Silicon Valley people. I
0: was going to say, that area doesn't even have wine in it anymore, does it? Is well,
1: there's still in Los Altos Hills several little vineyards for sure. But the real estate became, when I grew up, there was vineyards and apricot trees and you know, we had Palmasan you had early big wineries there. We had Wente across the Bay in Livermore. Wente's still there. Uh, but the property values uh, outstripped the let's keep a winery or a vineyard going, you know, right. urban sprawl happens, and it did, and the Silicon Valley happened, so you were, what are you going to do, keep your vineyard or, you know, sell it to Google, I mean, that, that <laughs> kind of thing happened, when we were getting ready to leave Arizona, that was really with the end of when we saw a lot of the agriculture in the immediate area where I grew up.
0: It's very interesting. The dollar becomes too much, too expensive for the dirt, and you can't afford to put the grapes on it. Oh, it happened all it, over right? California. Yeah. If you think
1: about it, I mean, you know, the Spaniards came up the coast and opened up all the missions and planted mission varietals, and there were vineyards all the way up the coast of California from Mexico. Um, you, there aren't any more in LA. There used to be a lot of vineyards in Orange County, really. But Disneyland or vineyards? I mean, these are wow. the things that happened, and you lost a lot, a lot of vineyards. Vineyard properties, wineries, all the way up the coast of California, until you get to about Santa Barbara again. They're started. They're there and further up north, uh, and Temecula still has an operation going. But right where the people live nowadays, and the fires are happening, you oh. don't see the vineyards. And that's a shame too. The fires, my guy. Fires are a problem. Yes. Yeah.
0: You know what? I hate to say it, but it's probably going to be a good thing for our Arizona wine. You know because. The production and availability and some of the losses are going to be so substantial. I, I don't know. Did you recognize anything even from a couple of years ago with those fires in no, regards right, right. to the Arizona at, wine?
1: At, at, no. At this point, Arizona wine industry is very small and we sell all that we make every year regardless of what's happening in of California. what the demand <laughs> might increase. No, the distribution increase. of California wine in the state of Arizona is a hundredfold or more. You won't see any blip as far as sales go, in our in our benefit, out. until we're at a point where we can really compete, we're, which we're not yet.
0: In mass production, you mean?
1: Mass production? Yeah, I mean, you, there are people in California whose one vineyard, uh, Edna Valley Vineyards, is, is a fifteen hundred acre vineyard. Wow. That's about how many acres of vineyards we have in Arizona.
0: In the whole Arizona. In the yeah, whole of Arizona. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So we're not there yet. We're we're about quality, uh, smaller production, family owned wines and i don't think you'll see a time when we are ever uh mass produced wine i mean there might be one or two that get on a level uh, arizona stronghold for instance or for vision or they're now nationally seen but it's not going to be every winery in this state or even half the wineries or a quarter of the wineries they're not aiming to do that which would even grow to that level. yeah it's about a quality of life too you know you don't really want to see that happen here and it won't because we have a finite amount of property available and a finite amount of water so you you couldn't see that
0: right and you're 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 kind of responsible for that arizona stronghold on a national level which we'll get into here shortly so okay so as you guys can already tell we are in front of a wine guru right now so paula you you started in Arizona. You came over from Cali. You just had to get out of there, right? Property was making the change in the environment, and you just needed to move. It, it was
1: it was the traffic. You know, we moved to Arizona in 1988, and at that point, it was already getting to be ridiculous traffic in the Bay Area. Uh, we also had three little girls at the time, and we were at a point in our lives where we wanted to focus on a clean, growing environment for them to grow up in. Yeah. Uh, and at that time in the late 80s, it was pre-earthquake there. The property values were wonderful. So we literally sold that house in California, came to Arizona. We had we a little house in Arizona, California, came out here and bought five acres and two houses. It nice. didn't have a mortgage. And that was like Sweet. the smartest move we ever made okay. and the quality of life and all of that. Yeah, and you're not stuck in that. Chaos. Uh, no, there was <laughs> right. one stop sign yeah. in Cottonwood
0: when we moved here. That's awesome. So <laughs> so when you got into this area then for work and to bring your wine expertise You did what? I know you were a a purchasing consultant for some top five-star resorts in the area. Yeah, I mean,
1: the really only thing to do at that point, there wasn't a wine industry per se here at that time. That's not why pretty much most of the people that we consider pioneers of Arizona wine industry, with maybe a couple of exceptions, we didn't move here to create a wine industry. We moved here to be here and live here and have a life here. Mm. That came later. So when early days, in the 80s and the 90s, Um, For me, it was working back into restaurants. That's what I did in college. It was something that I was familiar with. So I went to work for um, some bigger resorts here in in Sedona. I went to La Berge, and I was their their buyer and purchased wines for their program. Got won their first award of excellence from Wine Spectator, then migrated over to Enchantment, which is sort of the natural progression. Went to Enchantment, was the beverage manager there. And the wine buyer there, and I, I did their very first winemaker dinner at Enchantment, probably 1992, with Zelma Long. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and she was with Simi at that point. Wow. And then I won, got their first Wine Spectator Award of Excellence. And then from that point, I got into distribution. I was kind of taken away by... Uh, that world, they brought me in and wanted me to run Northern Arizona for a company called Cactus Beverage.
0: Oh, an actual distribution company. A real distribution Oh, yeah, special- big distribution. Saw your expertise and said, We got to get her. Yeah,
1: and so I became a fine wine specialist, in Northern Arizona um, sales manager, had a team of 12, and we handled Jeez. the entire Northern Arizona from St. John all the way up to the Grand Canyon, just, you know, rim to rim, both. All the way out past Havasu, it was a huge territory. Wow. Uh, so that's what I did then. For I got out of distribution, two thousand and nine. Wow. Mm-hmm. So crazy. I yes, I met a lot of people. And yeah, I'm, you definitely. But there st- still was no Arizona wine. We weren't selling Arizona well, wine at that. None point.
0: of the wineries were even well. Really there open, was really. a couple,
1: but they were considered not. People didn't appreciate Arizona wine in in the early two thousands. At that point, they'd had kind of a bad rep from wineries that were that kind of came and went and there was a lot of issues with actual how to make wine and how to keep it fresh and um, why making styles and how to grow the grapes we didn't have any kind of uh <coughs> consistent sharing of knowledge at that point mm-hmm. you know we we do now but back then we only had 12 wineries come 2004 so in the whole state in the whole state
0: yeah. wow so, yeah, that would be pretty important, I think, the collaboration aspect, right, because growing in the desert way, would be way different than growing somewhere else.
1: Yes, definitely. And it, high desert farming is something that we teach at the Southwest Wine Center. Yeah. You could teach somebody how to make wine. Wine making has been a thing that's been the processes have been stable since probably the first caveman made wine by mistake by har- picking grapes and just leaving them in a hole. Fermentation is a natural process. Mm. We can teach anybody how to make wine. Growing grapes is the thing that's different region to region. So we teach you how to grow grapes here based on the weather and the, and the geography and the things that are going on in northern Arizona, which is different than how you grow grapes on the coast in California. Absolutely. But we can take that knowledge of high-desert farming, and it works in a lot of places around the world. I mean, if you think about Australia, think about New Mexico, Colorado, Lebanon, there's Spain, Italy. Similar
0: terrain, high-desert.
1: And Well, it doesn't have to be high-desert per se. Uh, some places like Sicily are not high-desert, but they have temperatures that are similar and oh, geographically sure. not as not quite the same, but the rocks are the same, the soil is the same. The
0: mineral content and... Diurnal shift is similar. The Diurnal shift
1: is different when you're on a coast. Diurnal shift is extreme. Diurnal shift for those of you that don't know that term.
0: I learned that in Paula's class. Is by the, the way.
1: difference between the cold temperature in the morning and the hot temperature in the afternoon. And grapes, quality grapes, grapes to make good wine with. They need to have that shift between. Morning and afternoon, so that the sugars and the acids build and then they drop again. So, this up again, down again, up again, down again. That struggle and that allowing for sugars during the day to get hot, but then cooling down so the acids maintain, that's what a diurnal shift is. And where you live in the mountains, those of you that live in the mountains know that our temperatures here in the morning can be 50 degrees. And by the afternoon, they could be just like right now. This time of year, we're doing fifties to in the nineties. So that's a forty degree diurnal shift, which mm. is one of the things that makes growing grapes in northern Arizona, in Arizona per se, anywhere growing above thirty five hundred feet makes it happen. Makes it good grapes happen. We consider ourselves um, high desert here, but you look at places like Argentina, uh, Mendoza, Argentina has maybe a little bit bigger diurnal shift. But we're second in the world when it comes to that temperature swing. So that's that's something we can really say. People say, how can you grow grapes in the desert? Well, we're not in the desert. We're in the mountains.
0: Yeah, and we have green belts and creeks, and so you still get that airflow that goes, goes down all the all hill of and, and all of the, that. And yeah. the
1: geolo- geology and the different types of soil content we've got. The
0: volcanic. And we've got yeah.
1: volcanic, we've got limestone that caliche people hate to grow on. That's limestone. People love, they don't realize it, but some of the best wines in the world, that particular soil makes that wine famous.
0: Awesome. And that's why we are going to be famous at Arizona Wine. Yeah, baby. <laughs> right. So, obviously, you're, you're probably blowing people's minds already. I love it. So, tell me, when you got on board to be the specialist for the two top resorts in the area, were you already a part of the, how do you say that, Chain days Rotisseurs? <laughs> that's where I <laughs> Help discovered it.
1: The, the Conferie de la Chain is the oldest food and wine society in the world. And actually, at L'Auberge, when I was working there, we would do dinners for them. They would host some of their dinners there. So that particular group started in 1252. 1200? Yes, that's why it's the oldest, longest. 1252, and it was originally, it's a French organization that started as, maybe you would consider it the first union for the goose roasters, the chefs, the original chefs that were feeding the kings in France. And it went nonstop. Uh, until um, the French Revolution, Napoleon had some issues with it, then it started back up again, uh, and it stopped again after the First World War, Uh, and after that, it came back before the Second World War, and then at that point, it allowed for... Up until that point, somebody had to die before somebody new could join, and it was only professional chefs. After World War II happened, and it was started up again, it became an international organization. It just wasn't in France, and they started to allow non-professionals in, and then come the eighties, they started letting women in. Interesting. And I got involved with it in the nineties. Um, we just happened to have a very vibrant chapter of Shen members in the Sedona area, uh, and I put in my time as Bai, as first as Vice which is the person who pairs food and wine. So this group of people, literally their goal, all we are, all we really do, is a little philanthropic scholarshipping people in the wine and culinary field, uh, donations to local charities and mostly just eating and drinking. So we would <laughs> do, make the best we would we would <laughs> use local restaurants that were members and uh, the chef would be a member and we would I would go through and conduct interviews with them and then we would create these amazing menus and food and wine pairing and then mm-hmm. the members would pay lots of money and we would have these great dinners. Beautiful. So I did that uh, and then the last six years for that, I was the Bai, which is like the president, and the mm-hmm. head person. Mm-hmm. And we grew, 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 and had a lot of interesting, wonderful, exotic, unique events. And just this last uh, July, I handed the reins over to Wes Schumer, who is the owner mm-hmm. of Vino de Sedona. Yeah. He is now the Bae of the chapter, and I'm like, great. Uh, he's done a really good job of trying to keep everybody engaged during COVID, which has been difficult. Yeah, no doubt. We've been doing a lot of virtual wine tastings. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's incredible. It's, uh, so then you come with all of this incredible experience and, and accolade at that point. Was that when you uh, decided to, after you were working the resorts, then what, you, that's when you opened your restaurant?
1: During distribution, op- my husband and I and a partner from the Enchantment days, Opened a restaurant in Jerome called the Asylum, and the Asylum is still there. Uh, we owned it and ran it, and turned it into a destination restaurant. Um, I, we I sold it in 2010. We did to our partner because I was focusing a lot of energy at that by then on selling Arizona wine around the country. Yeah. So the Asylum was, um, yes, I own we owned the Asylum. It's a great restaurant. It's still there. you know with great views. Yeah, it's beautiful. Great wine program. We had another restaurant called The Recovery Room, which was oh, wow. across the street from the... We had... The asylum is located in a, in a haunted old hospital in Jerome. Yeah. We decided to open up a The Recovery Room restaurant, which is across the street from the hospital here. And it was also the Verde Valley Wine Company. So it was the first restaurant that had a retail wine shop in it. Oh, wow. um, and we opened that in 2007. Then the economy tanked, and we closed that one, and we sold the asylum, and I focused on
0: distribution.
1: Distribute by that point, I was working for Arizona Stronghold and Caduceus. Oh, so
0: that's how that came about. So you had a distribution network already, and then they snatched you up and said, "Hey," or did you, you, you put those guys together? Or how we, did that work? We
1: were friends. Um, I mean, this is old no, news. Now we're talking
0: about Maynard and, and Glomsky, two, two of the godfathers Yeah, Eric,
1: here. Eric, Glomsky, and I, I knew Eric when he when I was in distribution, and he was in college, at Prescott College. Oh, wow. We, we met at a wine tasting. I was putting on, and he rolled in and introduced himself, and he was still a river management guy in college. But he was going to go do an uh, internship for David Bruce in California, Mm -hmm. and David Bruce was one of my father's original partners, so we hit off this kind of a relationship then, when Eric was in college, that was probably 1997-ish, and then uh, I met Maynard uh, probably 99, uh, 2000, because of the asylum, I mean, we we were the only game in town in Jerome, and that's where he lives, and so he would come and have dinner, and our friendship started up then, and then one thing led to another, and he was talking about wanting to, you know, talk to somebody about making wine. I was friends with John Marcus at that time, who we From call Echo
0: Winery. The winery Echo here, Echo Canyon. Echo winery. Canyon, yes. yeah. And yeah. so
1: in nineteen, probably the two thousand vintage, I was harvesting, and uh, Eric had been hired by him to come be his assistant winemaker. Oh wow! And Eric was already thinking about doing Page Springs. He already had that property. And Maynard came down when we were harvesting, and one thing led to another, and everybody got to be friends, and that's sort of how that whole thing came down. You could see that how that worked if you ever see the movie Blood Into Wine. You yeah, can, the documentary.
0: Yeah. Ah, that, so that's why you were... I wondered why your involvement was in that video, too, because <laughs> I, I didn't recognize that you were instrumental in really kind of connecting.
1: I was there, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it was about... Everybody's interested in mine. Maynard wanted to talk to John about helping him plant vineyards or get some information from him. Sure. Um, so that's how that happened, and those that's guys awesome. hit it off. And The movie came along in 2009. By that point, we had already launched Arizona Stronghold as a brand and Caduceus and Merkin as a brand, and it just sort of fed into... The whole thing happened all at once. Movie following us around the country, doing Whole Foods bottle signings. Yeah, that's an interesting story. 41 bottle signings around the country where we then introduced those wines to all these different states around the country. Uh, Each one of those opportunities allowed for me to get with a distributor and bring on those wines to that state. And for those events, and then it just kept growing. And that's how we got Arizona Stronghold and Caduceus from 2009 to well, 2010, really, I think you should say, until about mm, 2014, we got it into 40 states, wow. four provinces, and New Zealand Wow! at that point. That's fabulous. It was amazing Great. opportunity. It was a lot of work introducing people to wines that... You know, I would walk in with a distributor and a buyer and a sales rep. You would go in, and most of the time I would just say, keep the wine in a bag and let them taste it first. (laughs) Don't
0: tell them what it is. Because as
1: soon as you said, um, they'd introduce, oh, this is Paula Woolsey. She's got Maynard's wine from Arizona. And if you didn't know Maynard, you're like, huh? And then they would immediately go, Arizona? And it was you were just already... Ostracized. The world didn't want to taste Arizona wine. So it turned into playing up the uh, the state's best assets and showing them that these wines, that we were overproducing in quality early on. I mean, these, Eric knew how to make wine. He really knew how to make wine. He knew how to grow grapes. He brought in the right people to help him. Maynard brought in the right people to help him. And everybody in the state sort of pulled each other up as we were also working on changing the laws in the state because they were not laws that allowed for... Uh, home wineries small farm wineries to really work with the public you couldn't go to the winery. you could go to the winery that's how you got the wine the winery wasn't allowed to sell it to a restaurant there was no distribution there was no wine clubs there was no tasting rooms there was a very small cap on the production and that all changed in 2004 and then again in 2012 so it's the laws changing is the biggest reason that we actually can have this industry here now. That's awesome. And yeah. that, that's always changing.
0: And you guys being foundational and laying that groundwork, I mean, that's pioneering, which is it, Yeah, brilliant. it was
1: definitely pioneering, and there was definitely a lot of help from a lot of people. That's awesome. A lot of people.
0: A so good collaboration. A lot of collaboration. So the guys good. down in
1: southern Arizona who had been uh, really doing it... First, we had wineries up here in northern Arizona, but the the focus or the accolades or the recognition at that time was, you know, um, Todd Bostock and Kent Callaghan and Gordon Dot and these guys that were down in southern Arizona.
0: There was a professor from U of A, I think, involved. What was his mm-hmm. name? Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. Gordon Dot. Oh yeah. And
1: Al Buell. Yeah, those, Buell. Yeah. Those were the ones that were pioneers per se in let's see how these grapes are going to grow Interesting. and can we make good wine um, and they were making reasonably good wine then we came along and we said well why don't we try this and we can make better wine and that's just sort of back and forth that back and forth is not ended people here in arizona are sharing information now that we have the college we're teaching so how good. to do it yeah. so it, if you come to arizona now and you're and people now come to arizona to get into the wine business we were all here Happily living our lives, and then got into the wine business. It was like it's a bonus, at least for me.
0: I heard that there was some international people coming now to try to learn what we're doing here, and taking whatever skills they might find useful back to like international, like French winemakers and different people like that. Yeah, John McLaughlin
1: has been really instrumental in that. Seller four three three bringing in and utilizing interns from wine colleges in other countries That's and again like I said uh, teaching about there are similar climates similar altitudes similar soil types to Arizona um, that will work in other countries and stu- if you're really into this wine thing and you want to do it you're gonna spend your six months of the year in your hemisphere and when harvest is done there, you're going to go to another hemisphere and do it again. And keep going. Harvest it again, and, you know, because we're all ha- half a year away from each other as far as how these things work out. That's beautiful. So you can do a full year as an intern for harvest. You can harvest one side of the world and then go harvest the other side. Go through the whole process of harvesting and winemaking. And if you're young. That's a great way to get your real education because you can see how it works.
0: Sure. Michael Pierce did that and Michael Matt, Pierce did that. One of our guests, Matt Reka, also did, did that. that. Yeah. Yep.
1: A lot of people go to New Zealand.
0: Yeah, that's both where they went, I think. Yep.
1: Completely different experience. Yes. Different climate, different. I mean I that's can ocean imagine. and wow. cold.
0: They both said it was fun though. Oh, sure. <laughs> so let's talk about the college. That's where I met you. So gang, there's a beautiful award-winning college wine program here. In, uh, it's a Yavapai College in Clarkdale, Cottonwood area. And when I moved up here, I got so fired up about it because I just was embracing the wine world and I'm here now and I want to do this. So I went to learn and enrolled in the Enology program that's called Science of Wine Making. And one of my first professors was the beautiful Paula. And she did sensory evaluation, which I have to tell you, was a very difficult class for me. And one of the funny elements that I remember from that class, Paul, is we're doing one of our wine tastings. It was a great class because every night you're drinking wine. So we're tasting all kinds of wines from all over the world and you're learning all this stuff. And I learned not to call Arizona terroir in that class. Because I have actually said in the other episode, you'll kill me if I do, right? <laughs> we can talk I mean, about it's that. Just,
1: too it's too to early to classify yeah. Arizona with any specific terroir. Yeah.
0: And so I found I found the class super, uh, it just was such an inspirational and knowledgeable experience for me. But one of the funny moments I took away was we're doing one sensory evaluation. And, and I'm just sucking at everyone. I can't. I'm not tasting the things that everybody's tasting. I'm not smelling the things that everybody's tasting. And finally I get up enough to raise my hand on one of the tastings and I'm like, Well, it's like cherry NyQuil. And Paula looks at me, and she says, That's great, Leon, because yeah, you're getting the cherry out of that. And it was just so Everybody funny tastes to something me. a
1: little bit different. You know, absolutely. That that class right now I'm teaching. Uh, we're doing it online, so you can imagine the challenge. Oh, wow. So, I mean, once we get through this whole online teaching and get back to face-to-face, it's been the hardest part for me is translating these classes that, for me, the in-person, being able to like coax everybody through and everybody being on the same wine at the same time uh, is the challenge. Uh, we'll get back to it eventually. I'm sure they. I, you know, I was gonna like. I can't do this anymore if I got to keep doing it online. Please, just stay. Everything's gonna be fine. We'll get back to it. So I, I'm giving it another year of online. I've got it all figured out now. Parts of it are fun being online. What we do have now is a, a lot of people from out of the area. There's yeah, only nine. Probably I more
0: than could be in the class. Thirty of course. people in
1: my class now. We have people from Utah in Ooh, the class. People from Southern Arizona, which. That's a benefit to be able to reach out more people.
0: That's a benefit note for you listeners, too, because what a great class to take. I highly recommend it. You have it by college. since graduation.
1: Though That was another... So we started the Verde Valley Wine Consortium in 2008, which is a trade organization that's mission is to foster market and uh, let the world know that Verde Valley is a... Uh, we want it to be known as an internationally quality wine region, first and foremost. And the heads, the board of directors at that point, it's basically the same board, um, kicking around ideas. If One of the first things we, needed, we knew we needed to do was create some kind of a wine program, a college-driven, real, honest-to-goodness, because when you think about wine regions around the country in the United States, most of them that are of any um, acclaim have wine colleges nearby. So there's a way for you to train people to be in the industry that you're creating. You, right. It kind of goes hand in hand. You can't just expect people to come in and, and learn how to do this stuff and then just go right to work without somebody to teach them to do it. So we had that Tom Schumacher, who at the time was the dean of the college, of uh, Yavapai College over here on the Verde campus, and we had a group of people. We got together. Eric and Maynard and Yamapai College and sat down and literally presented to their foundation why we needed to put a wine college program together for our campus. That's awesome. And they went okay. And so in the beginning, in two thousand and nine, I taught the first classes. Two years I did these not for credit classes just to see how the community would receive it. Would receive it. Exactly, and the program grew after that, and we started fundraising to build a winery. Uh, Maynard donated the first acre of grapes. Uh, we had the grapes first, our first classes, we were literally making wine in, you know, boy's five-gallon containers in the classroom, Wow! and we didn't have any of that. So the first classes were taught, the vineyard went in, And then the winery opened in 2015. So there was like it took a long time. And it's a
0: commercial winery. It's now it's
1: an uh, fully operational. You could learn um, the entire process from grapes in the ground through the whole season of growing and harvesting and pruning and netting and you know pest management and irrigate everything you need to know to grow grapes. And then, if you so choose, you could learn how to make the wine from here. Come those grapes freshly harvested, they land on the crush pad, these grapes get crushed, everything happens so that a student can learn nuts to bolts an entire um, retail commercial operation. So you could go from, and as our students, you know, go from our program after they get their degrees, and they get hired, we get calls from all over the country from people saying, you got anybody this year and wants to come to Sonoma, you got anybody who wants to come, you know, to Pennsylvania, I mean, it happens from everywhere. The interesting thing is, we're seeing the average age of our student is forty-eight. Yeah. We have a lot of people that have that was me. multiple degrees that are looking for something to do in their golden years, yeah. and maybe just grow a vineyard in their front yard, or maybe make a little bit of wine for their own use. So the program we have, young and old alike. I mean, yeah. young. The oldest person was eighty, and clearly, right now in Arizona, our youngest person is twenty-one. Uh, we're trying to work on the state right now. That's one of the laws we're trying to get changed, uh, where we could allow for 18-year-olds to taste the wines. Um. That happens in pre- every other wine college that there is around the country, hmm. but Arizona tends to be about five or six years behind the rest of the country sure. when it comes to these kind of laws. Regulations or bullshit. Uh, right. It's it's an uphill battle. Let me say, let me say. So the college is a success. You can get a one-year certification either enology or. Viticulture viticulture is for the grapes. Or a two-year, uh, whatever you so choose. Or go for both of them in three years and be... Depends on how much energy you want to put it's into sure.
0: it. Yeah, I love the program. I did it. I've made wine now three seasons. This last one I did, I aged in a, a four-whiskey bourbon barrel. Tastes nice. pretty good. Yeah. Red wine, I hope. Yeah, it's red. It's Cab. Let's do, let's, uh, why don't you give an illustration of what we would do if we were going to do a tasting? We got this Carlson Creek Chardonnay here. Yeah, we
1: we are sitting at Carlson Creek in Old Town Cottonwood. Uh, Michelle Carroll is the tasting room manager, general manager of this location.
0: An upcoming episode also.
1: An upcoming episode also. And we tasted a couple wines, and we chose to uh, drink together a 2018 Wilcox Chardonnay. Um, it is a we like to the kind of run through the statistics of the wines first. These grapes were grown in Southern Arizona, and they harvested 2018. The alcohol is 14%. Uh, we have. This one also was a silver medal winner at the Wilcox Wine Competition in 2020. So we're going to go ahead and give it a little swirl and smell it. You want to look at the wine and see what color it is. Uh, if you notice anything, you can tell a lot about a wine's color. This wine is clearly a golden yellow. Yeah. Uh, you want to like make sure there's no floaties or problems with it. It looks pretty clear.
0: Yeah. Clarity is real good.
1: you smell it, you want to... First note, if there's any problems with it, this wine does not have any flaws I can detect.
0: And she did detect something on the first wine we tasted, and it was, to me, almost not recognizable, but she detected, would you say, reduction. It was Well, red- it's, it was old. It was reduced, yeah, it was old. It, it, was, so, it wasn't she, something she that we it. wanted
1: to taste. Yep. So this one has a, a wonderful aroma. You want to give it a s- deep smell, and then you want to give it a couple little sniffs. And I, first thing you notice is a little bit of oak. It's got that caramel kind of. Yeah. Michelle, has it got oak on it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. New oak. oak? They usually do nine months neutral. Um, for this particular wine,
0: um, they probably did a combo of new. A new barrel with it, it, yeah.
1: Yep, so a little bit of new oak, a little bit of neutral oak. Caramelly, you get the vanilla. Yeah. Get a little bit of melon, a little bit of citrus. and yeah, I was going to say
0: citrus almost.
1: Yeah, we got uh, honeydew, yeah, and pineapple. So let's give it a, a little taste. Mm-hmm. Smoor a little while. Give it a minute to kind of marinate on your tongue. It's, it's nice, balanced. It's a got lot. a very nice, it's got good acidity on the front. Hits your mid-palate. You get the oak, you get a little bit of vanilla. And I do get a citrus in it. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of pineapple.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's probably a good...
1: Good long finish. I think, I think, I think this a is a nice wine. I think this wine would go well with a lot of different kinds of food.
0: So for a white wine like this with a higher or, or a nice acidity, what would you want to pair this wine with?
1: I want to pair this wine with like barbecued salmon. Oh, nice. Salmon would be great. Or something with a buttery sauce like
0: has scallops or
1: scampi. A pasta dish with uh, a white wine reduction with capers and lemon juice would be great because the citrus in here would oh. pair well.
0: The lemon juice would enhance it? Well, it, or we just it, blend? It,
1: when you pair citrus and citru- acid and acid, they're both acid, it kind of cancels it out and brings out the fruit of the wine. And it also cleanses oh, your palate. The amount of acidity would be cleansing to the palate if you've got a creamy white sauce going on. So it would kind of cut through it. Clean your palate, ready for the next taste.
0: Beautiful. And then, if it kind of neutralizes that aspect of it, then you that's what you're saying, you get more of the other more fruit, fruit flavors. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: this is pretty minerally. This wine has a, a decidedly. Um, you said sodium or a. Well, a salty, it, it, there isn't salt in wine, but there's, there's a high mineral content, which is something that you're going to see from a lot of different white wines down grown in Wilcox, for sure. And this one, if you were to pair it with that kind of a dish, Back to your, you know, scampy or something with a white wine heavy, you know, capers and all that. That is also going to be salt added to food brings out fruitiness in wine. So I think this wine would be lovely with that. The, The high qualities of this wine. It's great acidity. Arizona Chardonnay is one of the first things that I showed the country in a brown paper bag. Because they didn't think they, you could no, make they a Chardonnay
0: just, in Arizona.
1: No. I mean, <laughs> most people at that point were thinking of Arizona growing in the desert, you know, saguaro cactuses, and we were making raisin wine. So I would put the Chardonnay, uh, an Arizona stronghold dollar chard at that point, which was all neutral oak. It was just really clean, really fresh, really high, nice acid. And they would immediately think it was something from Burgundy. Really? Yep. And then you pull it out of the bag and they'd be stunned. Ta-da! <laughs> Arizona? Yes, Arizona. And, you know, the, the, the hard thing is the follow-through. Once you convince that buyer that this is an amazing wine, they have to be able to sell it to their customers. Sure. So that that's the trick about, you know, getting into distribution and sales is you have to stay on it and keep the, the brand alive in the eyes of the people that are selling it and show them by doing winemaker dinners because if you can get it to the public— the, then the public says, hey, I tasted that wine at this place, and do you have it? Yeah, and, and I then, want some more of that. And once okay. they start selling it. So those wines are still in distribution around the country right now. I think it's not in all 40 states anymore, but in a lot of states. There is a lot of countries' distribu- distribu- distribution going on in states in the United States that are bringing Arizona wine in on a regular basis.
0: That's where I did my uh, my oenology practicum hours was at Stronghold. With Matt, so mm-hmm. it was good. Now we're touching on something I'd like to just touch before we wrap it up here. This is a Chardonnay, mm-hmm. and very different than a California Chardonnay. So it's interesting that they would think this was a Bordeaux because of the acidity.
1: People yeah, don't because ex- it's a high acidity. People don't expect Arizona wines. The pe- wine people, sommeliers, buyers, knowledgeable consumers. Um, don't expect Arizona wines to be as acidic as they are, and which is the thing that, and that's a combination of the altitude and the soil. The soil, yeah, for sure. And then the vineyard managers and the winemakers are working together to pick at a point where those acids are really showing. Because one of the drawbacks of Arizona wine back in the day was they were picking them at too high a bricks or too sweet um, sugar content. And those wines tended to—they might be good for the first couple of months, but they were flabbier and they fell apart quicker. Mm. So the goal is to create these uh, wines, red and whites, that have enough acidity to really say a statement on the palate. So if you're considering the difference between California and Arizona as far as Chardonnay goes— there's a lot of difference as far as that goes. I mean, Sonoma, places that are closer to the coast... More have buttery, acid, more oaked up. But they're, right. t- they, the palate, the, the consumers there are more about a lot of um, oak and buttery yep. and malolactic fermentation, which we've learned to go judiciously on in Arizona because yeah. we want to maintain those acids, which is important for um, the longevity of the wine and, the, and how it feels in your mouth and how it goes with food. So you've you got to consider wine as a food. Coming from that point of view, um, you're making wines that, yeah, they're great to taste and sip, you know There's wines that are for that. Uh, but it, most wine is actually consumed with a meal. Right. So you got to think about making wines that are going to work with a meal. That's awesome. And Arizona at this point has enough really talented people to do that in a good way, to make wines that are wonderful with food. And you can buy wines that are also great to, to sip. But because we're in a hot state, white wines and rosé wines are, you know, they're trending and they, we sell more right, than we should do be a little more red acidity. wine.
0: We did that uh, with Michael Pierce when I was in the program, and we took two specific wines, and one was malolactic, and the other we did not, and it was like you're drinking two s- 100% different wines. <laughs> it Absolutely. was 100% difference. It was incredible. And I facilitated one of those tastings for one of the member events there, and the people were astounded. Well, at the it, it, it's
1: different. And again, malolactic fermentation is a secondary fermentation that the wine will go through sometimes with help, sometimes naturally, that converts malic acid, which is, um, think apples, a little more harsh to lactic acid, which is milk, think milk. So when you're converting the natural acids right away, those wines are gonna age faster and they're not gonna be as food friendly per se after they've sat on the shelf a couple of years. You know, 99% of all the wine people drink is drunk within 45 minutes of purchasing it. If you go put wine through malolactic fermentation, um, it will make it more approachable sooner. If you don't put it through malolactic fermentation, the wine will actually maybe take a little bit longer to get to that sweet spot of perfection as some of those acids start to resolve. But it will also allow that wine to stay fresher longer longer, and go better with food. Interesting. That's so good.
0: Well, thank you, Paula. Is there anywhere where our listeners should be finding you other than the college if they wanted to get in with your program or anything you want to leave them with? I really appreciate your time. Well, I I have a company
1: called Cellar Door Unhinged, which is a wine consulting uh, company that I started in uh, 2009. um, I'm known as the wine witch. I had a first company called Witch Wine, which was like a question mark, which wine? That's and awesome. I was known as the wine witch at Witch Wine. <laughs> and I got rid of Witch Wine when I got into uh, selling Arizona wines and then relaunched with Cellar Door Unhinged in 2013. And that's a company that I help uh, wineries and, I'm, you know, events. I'm an event planner. I take care of wine lists for restaurants. So I'm the you do agent for yep, the perfect. agent for a lot of wineries and a lot of like Yavapai College. I'm the on the all the liquor licenses there. So I take care of a lot of the interaction between the Arizona Department of Liquor. So if you're interested in connecting with me, just go to www. Which A uh, cellar door unhinged, just as it sounds.
0: Cellar door unhinged. Mm-hmm. So if you have a restaurant out there and you want to really improve your wine list, Paula is the one. Yeah, staff need, training,
1: whatever Yeah, you need. staff
0: training, education, and if you need help with even considering, like I asked you multiple times because I was thinking maybe I wanted to do a full-on label you know and get going yeah could do that could and could. she can help with all of that so
1: and help you get your vineyard planted and help yes. you open up a winery we have done all those things
0: she is a true arizona wine guru i'm so happy to have brought you miss paul and thank, thank you Paula. for
1: having me today all right cheers